Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Before I dive into today's interview with Ashley Lebinsky, I want to briefly talk about my upcoming testimony before the Kansas State Legislature tomorrow. I'm going to be talking about property rights in the context of foreign land holdings and also even domestic holdings and how sometimes they infringe on property rights. And I will be speaking before in particular the Kansas Special Committee on Foreign Adversary Investments and Land Purchases with a chief emphasis on property rights. The hearing will be broadcast on YouTube at 10.30 Eastern, 9.30 Central. I will include links for you to check it out. But it's a very big opportunity. I've come very close to testifying before a state legislature before here in Virginia. The bill was tabled indefinitely, and I hope I get an opportunity there because it's on protecting independent contractors. A little separate from this podcast, but this is related to conservation in a sense and I can't wait to do this. It's a little nerve-wracking, you know, first experience. I've done national TV. This shouldn't be too difficult to do because this is not really speaking before millions of people. But preparing a speech, having footnotes, it's a tall order to do this all yourself. And I'm doing this on behalf of CFACT, who is sponsoring. Typically, I would do this type of stuff with IWF, but CFACT was like, you should do this. And I am. And so you can catch that again tomorrow, 9.30 Central, 10.30 Eastern. Link to the YouTube broadcast link will be included in the show notes. Now to today's guest. I first heard about Ashley several years ago when she was working for the Buffalo Bill Center of the West Firearms Museum, and we have a lot of mutual friends. And I figured it was time to have her on the podcast. I've been really thoroughly impressed by her work. She is extremely knowledgeable about history, being a firearms historian, and she has done a lot in her 15 plus years of work. And she's a firearms historian specializing in material culture studies, as well as firearms and ammunition related museum consulting work. She's also an expert witness, freelance writer, guest lecturer, TV personality, and producer. And as I mentioned, she was most recently the Robert W. Woodruff, curator of the Cody Firearms Museum, overseeing the museum's full-scale multi-million dollar renovation. She co-founded the University of Wyoming College of Law's Firearm Research Center and was just appointed their executive director. Get to know Ashley Lubinsky, founder of the Gun Code LLC, in today's episode. Let me know what you think. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Why don't you talk about your background and how you got interested in historian work. Did you always have a goal to set out to be a historian, especially a firearms historian? So lay that out there for for my listeners if you can. So 
I did not grow up around guns, uh, which is kind of weird because I'm from Western Pennsylvania, which has a really thriving hunting culture. Um, but totally, you know, not a part of my life growing up. My my dad managed a rec center and his like pastime was golf. And my mom's a physics teacher and she's a professional figure skater too. So like in no way did that ever like meet with firearms. It wasn't like a you know, we didn't like them. It just wasn't a part of, of our culture. And I spent most of my uh, childhood, teenage years and first semester of college wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon, which is a little different than uh, what I ended up doing. Uh, I spent a lot of time in and out of the operating room when I was younger. I was in a wheelchair for a little bit in middle school. And so that was just kind of what I knew and what I thought I wanted to do, but I was always interested in the history of medicine. Um, I guess I just didn't really ever realize that, you know, people work at historic sites and museums until I got to college. But uh, during my first year of college at the University of Delaware, I went on a Civil War medicine tour at Gettysburg, which is about three hours from where I grew up. And they were talking basically about how the advancements of weapons technology, specifically in the Civil War ammunition technology, how that impacted injuries on the battlefield, which also then impacted how doctors and, and medical professionals had to treat those injuries uh, pretty quickly on the battlefield. And uh, I went to Colonial Williamsburg, got a similar spiel, different technology. And I was like, you know what, this is pretty interesting. So I changed my major to history. And uh, my mom, she hates that I always say this, but like literally she was like, you just better have a job when you graduate uh, because historians don't uh, or history majors don't necessarily always have that when they come out of school. And so from that point forward, I did I started studying firearms, ammunition, kind of from a very generic ballistic standpoint, um, especially historical uh, battlefield uh, weaponry. And then I just got hooked. I did my first internship at a military museum in Western Pennsylvania. And there I had to catalog hundreds of guns. Uh, first time I'd ever held a gun before in my life. I think I had just turned 19, maybe it was 18 or 19. And so I was hooked. And so I did that internship. I learned how to shoot modern and historic guns and basically did every volunteer and internship program I could do uh, throughout the rest of my college. And I think I saw you had a stint at the Smithsonian Museum. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, so it's kind of, it's super random. Um, so I knew, you know, I wanted to work in firearms, but, you know, you take your opportunities where, where you get them. And so there was a internship in the National, National Museum of Natural History's Botany Department. Um, so I know nothing about plants. I still know nothing about plants. Uh, and it was to study, uh, early U.S. expeditions. And so I was like, well, that's interesting. And, you know, U.S. expeditions are kind of tangential to the timeframes that I was interested in studying. So I applied for that internship and I never heard back. And uh, they just didn't have funding at that point. And so ultimately the funding came through like six months later. And uh, the summer in between, I think in between my senior year and my first year of graduate school, I started in the botany department. And one of the cool things there is you get a Smithsonian email account. So I was able to quickly figure out the email account of the firearms curator over in the National Museum of American History. And I emailed him and was like, I'm interested in studying firearms. Can I come over and see the collection? And he was like, sure. Um, 
There's a lot of funny stories with that initial meeting, but I ended up that summer um, spending a little bit of time in the firearms collection. I would basically go in and do my internship at like five in the morning. Uh, the the curator in the botany department also got up and in, into the office that early. So I would go and do that. And then I would spend some time in the afternoons in the firearms collection. And then I ended up just staying there for, for three years. Um, I stayed there mainly spring, fall, and I did a lot of different things. Uh, I was a research fellow in connection with the University of Delaware. And um, during that time is how I got affiliated with the Cody Firearms Museum in Wyoming. And so I started working there summer winters so that I could kind of get a little bit of both worlds while I was uh, in graduate school. Talk more about your time as the Robert W. Woodford curator of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West um, and your involvement with their Cody Firearms Museum, because that's how I think I first heard about you, because the gun industry is a very small industry, as everyone knows. But I remember you took ownership of that project and really helped it come alive. Um, Could you talk about your tenure there? What did you accomplish and how has the public received the firearms musician and if there's been any opposition to it, too? Because I know some people may oppose museums um, on, on these grounds, especially, but maybe your experience is different. So feel free to answer that as best as you can. That I love yeah, it, no, it. <laughs> I would say my experience is um, is definitely different. Um, when I started at Cody, uh, like I said, I was still in in school and I held a lot of positions there. But I became curator uh, in when I in 2015. I had to think about that for a second. I was ultimately with Cody for 10 years. But I took over as curator in 2015, and it was the the craziest thing I think the Buffalo Bill Center of the West has ever done because I was 25, I think. I was 24 or 25 years old, and who... Whoever thought to take a chance on somebody that just started their career to run one of the largest gun museums in the country, the only accredited uh, firearms related museum in the country um, and in the middle of a renovation. So they also gave me the keys to the kingdom in terms of running a complete gutting of the museum, reimagining and reinstallation of the museum. And so it was kind of weird. And I learned on the spot um, I learned on the spot really quickly, uh, you know, because when you study museums, I mean, my firearms knowledge was decent and I was always learning and I was always open to learn because our collection spanned seven or sorry, not even 700 years, like 900 years of history. We had about 7000 firearms, starting with hand cannons, which is the earliest uh, firearm. And those date to at least the 1200s. But I think there's an example from the 1100s. And so I kind of had to figure it all out. Uh, I also had to learn how to budget and write grants, uh, all the things that you don't necessarily learn in graduate school when you're studying museums, unless you take business classes, which they don't require. Um, so yeah, I, I had been to the museum for a couple of years at that point. And it was kind of interesting because when I first went to the Cody Firearms Museum, I was like, this museum is the coolest museum ever, ever. And everybody knows it exists because it's so important. And then I was kind of shocked at how nobody in the industry unless they'd been in the industry for, you know, 30 years, had any idea that we even existed. You know, I always say that I'm not a part of the gun industry. I'm kind of tangential, but, you know, obviously having a firearms museum, we work a lot with, you know, gun companies. But I was shocked. We hosted this big event that used to go on uh, with the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And I think it was FMG Publications at the time called Shooting Industry Masters, which Cody hosted in... 
2013. And I was surprised because we had, you know, 500 people from the gun industry and we were giving tours and everyone's like, what is this gun Mecca that we never knew about? And that was kind of concerning and shocking to me as just an assistant curator, because I knew that a renovation was coming up and I knew that fundraising was coming up. And so I kind of started a concerted effort to get myself out there in gun media, um, get myself out there in all media and, you know, go to SHOT Show go to all the trade shows because we had to raise awareness because if nobody knew we were there, then what was the point of, you know, rebuilding the museum? So it was kind of surprising. It was like uh, we were a big deal in the 70s and the 80s. And when we built the Cody Firearms Museum in 1991, but we lived on a legacy and we just didn't actively market ourselves. So I worked really hard before I became curator to have some level of presence. And then, you know, it never kind of stopped and it's not stopping today. So when I took over as curator, at least some people knew we existed, and I became the project director on our renovation. That was a $12 million renovation, and that reopened in 2019. But you asked about kind of the way that the museum was received, and it was kind of surprising. So the Firearms Museum is a part of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, which is a 40-acre property, um, five museums, a research library. So the, all of the museums are under a seven-acre roof, and the Firearms Museum is about 40,000 square feet. So because of that, we actually got like 200,000 people through the door every year, people that were on their way to Yellowstone, were interested in the art museum or other museums. And so we had this cool opportunity to reach people from around the world that I think a lot of firearms museums don't get. Uh, if you're a standalone firearms museum, the people who are coming to that museum are interested in guns. But we learned uh, through survey work that about half the people, so 100,000 people that came through the museum every year, really had no knowledge about firearms, especially our mm -hmm. international audience. So it was, you know, it was surprising. And so when we were Working on the museum, we very much wanted to focus on that 100,000 people and how could we create a museum uh, where they felt comfortable because a lot of those people maybe have hesitance uh, around firearms, don't understand firearms or only know what they're told in the media about firearms. So how could we create a museum that provided them a context for how integral firearms history is to understanding international history, which comes with good and bad things and things that are neither good nor bad. They just are. And so we started really working on that. But we always, you know, knew that we didn't want to alienate the other 100,000 people who are just coming to see the guns. And so we kind of did a lot of work to figure out how to do that. I created a committee that basically had everyone from your super hardcore gun guy to your people that really hated guns to review the material, to try to find some level of, you know, middle ground. And what was also interesting about that was we learned through that survey work that only about 3% of people that were coming through the center would refuse to come into the firearms museum. And I thought that percentage was actually pretty low. Um, and so we didn't focus on that. They didn't, they didn't matter to us because we were never going to convince them to come in. And now you're a curator emerita and a senior firearms scholar, correct? Still with the museum? So I'm actually, um, I step back completely from the museum. Okay. I, I still do our podcast, History Unloaded, but um, I decided in, I decided long before the museum reopened in 2019 that I wasn't going to stay uh, much longer after that. Uh, I believe very strongly in not working beyond your own relevance. And I was hired to come out to Cody. I learned 
so much. Um, and I rebuilt the museum and it was time for somebody else to, to kind of take it further than that. And so we had decided that the, my assistant curator, Danny Michael, who is the curator now, uh, would take over the museum. And so I spent a year, um, 2019 to 2020 as the curator, but, you know, transitioning and making sure he had all the paperwork, making sure our budget was closed on the renovation. I didn't want people to be like, well, she built it and then it fell apart and she ran away. Right. So I, I hung out, helped made sure he was good to go. And then I stayed on in that capacity for one more year, uh, just to make sure Danny was good as curator and, you know, had everything that he needed. And so then after that, though, I, I stepped back completely. I mean, Danny's, you know, one of my best friends, so I'm still always involved, but I know that, you know, I, I didn't want to, I wanted Danny to stand up in his own right. And he's so awesome and he's doing that. And I just, felt like it was time for me to kind of step into the shadows for that. I just didn't want to, I'm kind of loud and I kind of have a big personality. So <laughs> it was time, you know, it was time to to work on some other things. And that is where I think you've kind of focused more on your consultancy firm, the Gun Code LLC, it, right? You're focusing a lot on that. Um, could you talk about what your consultancy does? I know you run it with your husband, but give the full picture about what you both do. Yeah. So what's really funny is that his name is just on it. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I've had, so the gun code is just a single member LLC. It's just something that I created. So it's like far less exciting than everyone's making it out to be nowadays. But when I started at Cody, one of the um, parts of marketing the museum was they allowed me to consult for other museums uh, so that we could train people to understand firearms because you kind of had this uh this divide where you had museum people. So people who were classically trained in museums that had no background in firearms. And then you had people that had a background in firearms that had no background in museums. So I kind of started merging the gap. Um, and I called my, my business gun code. Um, and just kind of did that in Wyoming. And then when I moved to Arizona, I actually dissolved it in Wyoming, uh, instead of transferring it. And then I started it again and I put my husband's name there because I knew he was going to consult at some point. And it's so funny because now that he's involved, everyone's like, Oh, you and your husband found a gun code. And I'm like, no, I just put them on there like <laughs> you know for you know for grins you know I, I I knew he was gonna do some stuff down the road but it is really funny um you know how much people now talk about gun code because of some of the court cases I'm working on and I'm and I I think I told uh in a deposition or something when they asked me about my website uh talking about my husband and I I was like I did that as a Christmas present so <laughs> you could feel like involved but it was just me like adding him to the website so I could be like look you're a part of this now but he's not he's got a full-time job so he doesn't really consult that's more just for down the road but so the consulting business is pretty much me and it's divided about Oh, well, in 2022, it was 85% historical consulting. So it was about 50% museums. And then I think it was, now I'm going to show that I can't do math. Uh, I want to say it was like 25% uh, consulting for an auction house. And then about uh, under 10% uh, was uh, TV. I, I write and produce television. I appear on, on programs, uh, writing in general and guest lectures. And then about 15% was, uh, expert witness testimony, which 
is kind of, uh, it's a big percentage, which I don't normally have. I've been doing expert testimony for a while. Um, but in 2022, there was a Supreme Court decision that basically said that history is the most important determinant for the constitutionality of gun laws. And as a result, pretty much every historian in the country has had their phone ringing on both sides uh, because, you know, everybody needs an expert now on firearms history from the founding era, the second founding era, which is around the ratification of the 14th Amendment. So uh, everything's a little skewed right now just because of the Supreme Court and then bumping everything back down and making history so important. So normally it's museums and collectors and writing and television. Um, and now uh, the University of Wyoming College of Law's Firearms Research Center. But there's a little bit of a bump in my in my workload on expert testimony. And given your expertise, you've been heavily sought out by Congress. You've also been sought out by particular like forums. First, I want to ask you about your May 2021 uh, Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution hearing, which was entitled Stop Gun Violent, quote, Go Scuns. And I like you, I don't like to use that term either. Um, but you attracted a lot of attention for your testimony on so-called, quote, ghost guns. Could you summarize the experience and discuss how uh, privately made guns, more appropriately, do-it-yourself guns, um, you know, what, why do they need to be demystified and how they were more common than perceived, you know, by the wider public? Uh, yeah, so that was a trip. Um, I think I found out, like, it was like a Thursday or something and I had had a work lunch. So I had had a whiskey and, uh, I got a phone call that was, you know, uh, I can't remember who it was from, but they were basically like, Hey, we have a subcommittee meeting on, you know, quote unquote ghost guns next Monday. I think it was Monday. No, it was Tuesday. Sorry. Would you be interested in talking to, it was with Senator Cruz's office. Would you be interested in talking to people from that office and see if it's the right fit? Um, and so I talked to them and they were like, okay, you've got to submit a report. Um, the report could be short or long, but I'm an overachiever. So I think it was like 20 pages <laughs> but noted uh, by Monday. And I had to fly. I think I flew on Sunday. So I spent Saturday gathering my notes and then Sunday, writing footnotes on the plane. Um, and then they had given me actually bad information. They told me that I had till Monday at like 5 p.m. I had Monday till 10 a.m. to submit this report. So, I mean, it was the biggest whirlwind. I had never done anything like that. And you're not paid to do that um, like you are with other expert testimony. And so I had this report that gets submitted the day before so that the subcommittee can review it. Um, and then you give a five-minute uh, talk. And as you can probably already tell from this podcast, I'm a little long winded. So I wrote it all down, uh, which I've never really done before. I usually just speak off the cuff and you sit there and there's a timer, which is very helpful because that way, if you're rambling, you can kind of pull, pull it back together. Um, so you sit there, you've got your five minutes and it was really pretty funny because the Republican senators that were there actually, um, like plagiarized my report, which I guess is a compliment, but oh. made me panic because, you know, they were giving examples from my report and I'm sitting there like crossing things off of my like speech and being like, well, I can't talk about that because here I am like looking like Elle Woods in a pink suit. And if I repeat what they say, they're going to think that I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm copying them when in fact it was the other way around. So I'm scratching things off my list and I, I give my talk and part of it's off the cuff and part of it's what was in the script. But was what was interesting about that is that you don't get to speak unless you're spoken to in the kind of the, the dialogue portion or the question and answer portion. 
And so typically uh, Republicans ask questions of their witnesses and then um, or I don't know if I'm called a witness in that world, but then yes. Democrats ask it of theirs because they don't want to give a platform to, you know, the other side's witness to say something important. But that didn't happen. So it, there was only one, I think, Republican senator that was there because Senator Cruz had to leave. Um, so I was only getting questions from one people, one person. So I was like, sweet, I don't have to do anything. Like, this is going to be <laughs> so easy. And then we go through one round and because there were so few people there, Senator Blumenthal, who was the chair of that subcommittee, um, was like, well, let's go back, let's go back around. And for some reason, he decided to ask me a lot of questions. Um, and we had a rather interesting back and forth that was actually really fun. I, I was surprised he would give me that, that kind of time. Um, and it was a good back and forth. I, I think I, I held my own. Uh, one of the things that continues to happen to me in everything court or co uh, committee related is that everyone wants to know my personal opinion. And I don't give my personal opinion because that's not anybody's business because I'm not I'm not brought as, you know, a witness who has an emotional connection to something. I'm here to give you history. You figure out what you want to do with it kind of thing. So he and I went back and forth on that um, a couple of times, um, but I didn't give him anything, which was nice. Um, so, yeah, so it was uh, really interesting and I was super nervous because uh, I had this moment. Um, Senator, I give credit where credit's due. Senator Blumenthal is the only person that came up to speak to me uh, huh. before uh, my testimony. I did not see any other senators um, even bother to come talk to me. And he came up and I didn't really know who he was because I hate politics and I'm not really. Everyone <laughs> kind of warned me, but I was like, whatever, I don't care. And so he came up and he was very familiar with my report and he was very complimentary. And, and thanked me for you know, putting together something so comprehensive on such a short notice. And then he walked away. And like, as we were sitting down, I was like, was it, was he mess? Like, was he messing with me? Like, <laughs> I was like, wait, is this bad? Um, and then, but, but to be fair, I, I think I, I made, you know, some really good observations. Some people say I made him look bad. Um, and he came up and spoke to me afterwards too. Uh, I got the COVID fist bump or elbow bump. Oh, right. At that uh, time, yes. It was in the middle of COVID. But yeah, it, or I guess towards the end. But uh, yeah, so it was, I really thought it was interesting. Um, but uh, I, I'd never done it before. I haven't done it since. So maybe I didn't do that good of a job. No, no. They're I just totally doing so many but... things. Like you can't get anything firearms related. And because, you know, it's a divided Congress. So the pro-gun majority in one chamber may want to do something and then the Senate may say no. So it's, yeah. you know, and, and they're fighting over keeping the government afloat or shut down <laughs> to be determined. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's impossible to get this out there. But I think you did fine. I caught it. And I think people uh, liked your and appreciated your test. So I don't think it's you. I think it's Congress. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I understand that. But what I was there for, um, and, and I love the ability to have this platform. So you, you mentioned, uh, the term ghost gun. And one of the things that I did talk about is that I tend to not use those terms unless, mm -hmm. you know, we're speaking about like what they call it in a piece of legislation or whatever. So like if it's an assault weapon ban and that's what it's called, I, just for, you know, brevity, I'll say that. Um, but I don't use those terms um, specifically because I think sometimes they're misleading, um, you know, and I understand having to you know say something that people can feel like they get behind, but it's marketing. And what I've learned with my expert testimony is that a lot of times we call something one thing because it helps people get behind 
that, you know, like the average person can wrap their brain around that. And they're like, oh, let's do that. And then they, you know, you get to actually look at the law and they're not doing anything like that. And so the point of my testimony was, you know, how can you measure efficacy if you're not doing what you're saying you're doing and by not doing what you're saying you're doing, you know, both sides should be, you know, like both constituencies should be pretty, pretty irritated, mm-hmm. um, you know, because you're not getting good information. And if you're not getting good information, then, you know, you it really polarizes the debate. And so I spoke about that, but then I also spoke about the kind of long history of privately made firearms, because let's be real, prior to ma- mass manufacture, prior to major manufacturers, everything was privately made. Indeed. Yep. No, and, and that's really interesting because I've done a lot of reporting work on so-called ghost guns, and I try to look for the facts. And I cited your testimony actually in one of my pieces, I think, regarding the Nevada law. That, uh, the, I think the, they voted to make it illegal to have so-called ghost gun kits or privately made, uh, firearms kits. But I think the Supreme Court actually invalidated that law. So I, I was able to cite your testimony about how it's actually not some new, uh, phenomenon. Um, they've been pretty readily acceptable. And the, the crime statistics show that they're not, they're not even used, not even infrequently. It's almost like rare if they're used in any, you know, instance of crime too. So, the the occurrence and their usage may be over exaggerated, even though I think at the time the FBI was saying it more and more. So called you know ghost guns are being used in crime. So I think anyone can see, um, even those of us who aren't historians like you, that um, they are really kind of misconstruing it. So I think experts like you can help kind of m- uh, deconstruct uh, what what they're talking about and, and debunk any of the assertions they make about it. So um, I, I think that also comes to where you. You know, your work is sought after people in different institutions and and organizations have leaned heavily on your expertise and guidance. So that is what's led you. You alluded to the University of Wyoming College of Law and how you helped co-launch the Firearms Research Center. You were just appointed executive director. So talk about the center and what some of your goals are and what you hope to accomplish in this role that you have with them now. This has been a project that I've been working with a, a scholar named George Moxery for a couple of years now, maybe three years. I don't even know anymore. Um, but I was brought in because this was kind of George's baby. Uh, if you're not familiar with George, um, he basically with David Koppel and, and a lot of other people created the first case law book on the Second Amendment. So he's a, he's a professor, he's a lawyer. Um, and so he is now also teaching a course on the Second Amendment um, at the University of Wyoming. So he came from the perspective of, I want to create a research center within the law school that can provide background on the Second Amendment, but then also create a pipeline to create firearms lawyers. And that can sound kind of misleading. We're not meaning Second Amendment attorneys necessarily, but people that work for Ruger or, you know, Daniel Defense, people that are doing product liability. So that can be a lot of things. But I was put in touch with George because one of my biggest soapboxes is the fact that it's really hard to study firearms, firearms history, firearms material culture in the university system today. It's not difficult in Europe, but it is in the U.S., which is kind of ironic. And so I got put in touch with George and I was like, okay, cool. I'm not a lawyer, but if I, you know, am a part of this, then I want to really make this a cross-disciplinary, um, study. So the research center is not just law, but 
it's history. It can be public health. Uh, we're actually partnering with the Wyoming Department of Health and the VA right now on a suicide prevention initiative. Um, but basically, it, the main long-term goal would be if you want to study firearms from really any discipline, you can come to University of Wyoming. And now that's the pie in the sky goal. But right now we're kind of working on multiple avenues. We've got our academic kind of track, and that is we've got research assistants. Um, we're trying to currently gather scholars from around the country that are already studying this because a lot of times those professors are siloed um, and they don't know each other exists. So we're trying to aggregate the scholarship that's already available. Um, and then hopefully, you know, obviously we'll hope to get more scholarship for more scholars, uh, academics moving forward. Um, but that also means that we're trying to kind of buck the system in the sense of a lot of people that are the most respected in the gun and kind of the gun history world are not your academic university professor. They're collectors, they're researchers. And I don't have any problem saying they're also YouTubers, <laughs> you know? And so I really want to see kind of emerging of a vetting system that, you know, allows people without PhDs um, to be able to be respected in the same vein that a PhD would. So that's kind of one track. The other track is a practical application. Uh, we have a website that we're currently working on. Um, each piece kind of keeps getting launched. We'll have a, a brief bank where you can actually search different briefs for different cases. And that's our if you're the media, if you're the public, if you're a lawyer and you want to come and get information, we're kind of the one-stop shop for that. So we want to see our research not just be, you know, oh, in the ivory tower, but then also how can we impact um, the modern debate? And then the last component of that is we want to do community outreach. Um, so hunter therapy, safety courses, um, but the kind of main focus now is suicide prevention. I don't know if any other university, especially law school, has that. So you've piqued my interest. My ears are perked. I don't have a law degree, but I'll tell my lawyer friends who are interested to look you guys up. But I, I would love to use you guys as a resource for, resource for any of my reporting work. Ashley, we've gone through a lot of topics. You are very impressive. And I hope everyone listening takes away a lot of knowledge that you've shared here, dispensed here, connects with you. What is the best way for my listeners to learn more about you, get involved with the various efforts you're involved in, support uh, the different institutions you mentioned, list all those resources if you can. For sure. So if you're interested in kind of following my eclectic nonsense, uh, I'm at History and Heels on Instagram and I'm at official Ashley Lubinsky. Have fun spelling that on Facebook. I have a Twitter, but I don't use it. So no need to follow me there. If you're interested in what we're doing at the Firearms Research Center, uh, you can email our email, which is frc at uwyo.edu. Um, I'm currently answering most of those emails. So if you need something from me, you can also reach out that way. Um, and then if you're interested in following us, we're firearmsresearchcenter.org. Um, and then we're also at Firearms Research on Instagram. And we're Firearms Research Center, I think, on Twitter and Facebook. All those links will be listed in the show notes for this episode. So I will make sure everyone gets that. Ashley, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. I'm glad we finally connected. I hope I get a chance to meet you in person sometime in the near future. But if any time I could be a resource or you'd like to comment on anything and be included in some of my reporting, let me know. I would love to help you out in any way. That'd be awesome. Maybe we'll see each other at SHOT Show 2024. 
Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.